Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Today we are continuing in our series, Woven in Gospel, and I've entitled this one, When God Prays, which is kind of an interesting thing because when we think of prayer, we don't think of God praying, but Jesus did pray, and we're going to look at John 17. Why would he need to pray if he knew the will of God, heard everything that God said, did what God had him to do, then why does he need to pray? But he did. And so before we start, let us pray. God, thank you for this morning. I thank you for everyone here. And I pray, Lord, that our time together would be helpful to each of us, Lord, that you would allow our conversation through Scripture to be something that provokes us, that changes us, that gives us insight, that gives us hunger and thirst after you, that would move us along in this faith, Lord, as we are trying to find ways to live close to you, to represent you, and to bring the awareness of who you are to a world that, that desperately needs you. Thank you for our time. Thank you for this space. Thank you for the people here, Lord. Bless for your name's sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read a few scriptures. If you can, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We'll start Luke chapter 10. I don't know what just happened. Oh, that one had a problem. Okay. Rick's on top of it. As soon as he finishes his cupcake, he'll be right with us. Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. I'll start off and read. It says, In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
And now in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus has said everything that he needed to say to his disciples, and he concludes his final teachings with prayer. He actually prays into their lives. He he doesn't just speak into their lives, but he prays into their lives. And I, I think this is something that's interesting when someone prays, they are communicating, but in, in a different level. Because he's not talking to them, but he's talking to God for them. And so in a real sense, he's still communicating to them, but it's just in a different way. And this prayer is like the entire gospel compressed into one chapter. If you have time, we're not going through the whole thing. Read through this and do it slowly because this chapter has a lot of things in it, but if you read it too fast, it almost seems like a riddle the way it's written out, especially in our translation. Even as I just read some of these things, it's like, you know, the glory that I had with you before I give to them and this glory now. There's just so many words that it can get lost and get a little bit jumbled. So take your time and go through it. We know that Jesus prayed, but this prayer is very unique from all the other gospels. Jesus prayed a lot, especially in Luke's gospel. We saw that he prayed when he chose the 12 apostles in chapter six of Luke. He also prayed specifically for Peter that I just read when he said, I prayed for you because Satan desired or demanded to sift you like wheat. I do not know what that means exactly, but it terrifies me, right? It's just one of those things like, what the heck is that? I don't want to be sifted like wheat. Can you please pray for me, right? What is going on? And we know the denial of Peter. We know the trial that he came through and the things that he encountered that would challenge his faith. And Jesus prayed for him. Do you think he prays for you? I think he does. There's times maybe you feel like you're being sifted like wheat. 
I know there's times I do. There's times where it just feels like there is so much going on and my mind cannot think clearly and I, I cannot sleep and I, I struggle with anxiety and so many things. And I believe that Jesus prays for me. That I wouldn't be sifted like wheat. And I think it's by the grace of God that we are here and that we stand. So many of us, maybe we don't even realize it. The other gospels don't record the contents of this prayer, even though he taught his disciples how to pray, told them how to request things from God. The words of this prayer are not reported in the other gospels. It's almost like we're eavesdropping. John takes us into a particular prayer of Jesus, and doing so, he takes us into really the heart of Jesus. He allows us to eavesdrop to hear what were Jesus's concerns in the last hour with his disciples? What did he care about? I know that there's been times in my life, in my relationship with Corrine, especially when things are difficulty, when we pause and we pray, I get to actually hear what's going on in her. You know, we talk and I find out all these things, but when she prays, I find out a lot more. I find out a little deeper what's taking place, what the concerns are. As she opens up to God and shares some of these things, I get to eavesdrop into that and hear what's going on. And there's some key themes from the story of Jesus that appear in this prayer. For example, Jesus frequently addresses God as Father, right? As Holy Father in verse 11, as Righteous Father in verse 25, And Jesus, again, refers to this hour. He talked about that in John chapter 2 at the wedding when his mother came up to him and said, they're out of wine. And he says, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He said that again in John 17 or in John, yeah, in John 17 where he says, my hour has come. Right? So he, he sees this conclusion of what's going on related to this hour that He glorified the Father, and the Father glorifies him. From the beginning of John, God's glory has to do with his self-revelation. God is revealing himself. His glory is his presence being known. Remember, we've talked glory is not just brilliance or light. It, It actually is substance. And so when we think about the glory of God, it's his presence being known in a way that is almost tangible, in a way that we can interact with and have relationship with in this way that he is revealing himself. And this is what we're seeing through here. This is how God had manifested himself to Moses in Exodus, right? His glory came down. Everyone saw it. There was the fire and everyone freaked out, right? The pyrotechnics and they go, you go talk to God. We'll stay down here because it's a little terrifying. But there was something that they saw, something they encountered that affected them. And his presence to Israel was done in that way. In John, this is how God manifests himself to the world. It is through Jesus. He said so in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory, his presence, the things that he did, the miracles that he did. It's been something that we have witnessed and been a part of. The glory of God was seen, not just thought of, but it was present with them. They were able to have this kind of relationship with it. 
In regard to Jesus' glory, John sees through the synoptic vision of the cross. He sees Jesus glorified on the cross. He sees the suffering, the shame, but he also sees beyond it. Right? It's not just Jesus died on the cross. It was, it was, he died for a purpose. He died for a reason that there was intention with what God was doing. Andreas Kossenberger tells us that in Mark's gospel, the cross is a place of shame, humiliation, and suffering for Jesus. The soldiers mocked him. The priests mocked him. Bystanders mocked him. Even the thieves next to Jesus mocked him. Kossenberger goes on to say, however, in John, the cross is the place where Jesus will be glorified. And he explains that John enlists Isaiah to show that contrary to the world's perspective, the cross was not, in fact, a place of dishonor, humiliation, and shame, but instead constituted the location where Jesus was exalted for his willingness to die for the sin of the world as the Lamb of God an obedient son of the father. You see, John is taking all the things that were in the other gospels and he's helping us to digest them, to see that all these things that people saw as shameful, this was actually something more. God was doing something rich and powerful. And gosh, that's what we need. It's to see the condition of our life transformed into something that God is doing. Because we can get blinded by our circumstances, can't we? Where we just get stuck. Like, God, where are you? What is going on? If you were for me, how could this be? This is shameful. This is humiliating. This is unbearable. But John sees past that and says, this is where glory takes place. I wonder what would happen if we could see past the humiliation, past our pride, where there would be a place where we could just let go of those things and worries about what people think and really just care about what God thinks. And what would we do if that's how we lived? How would it change our conduct? How would it help us to live lives that were more meaningful. Jesus reveals God through his obedience, even as he rises to this place of glory. Another theme in this chapter is eternal life, where he talks about in verse 17, for I have given them the words you gave me, and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me. There's a difference here from what you come to know and what you have believed, right? There's a difference from knowing something and there's a difference in believing something. There's things that we believe that we don't really know. The Trinity, right? We believe in it. We believe that God is three persons, but each person is single, but together, We don't know how that works, but we believe it. It's kind of a common belief that we have, right? And the same way, there are things that are a mystery of God. Paul tells us that in 1 Timothy 3, great is the mystery of godliness. 
right? The thing, there are things that still are beyond our ability to know, but we believe in them. Sometimes our hearts believe and understand things that our mind doesn't quite catch up to. You can also know things and not believe or trust in them, right? You might know that God is faithful or trustworthy, but not actually trust in him. And so there's a difference between knowing and believing, and we try to, to marry these two together so that we walk in the harmony of what they both are. It's so difficult for us to get past this mental thinking where we feel we have to just know it, and that's enough. That's been a struggle in my life is I just have to know. I've got to get all the information. If I know this information, that's all I need to do. But then I find that belief is something different. That emotion has to be a part of what's going on here. And really, we see a big part of that here. Another theme in this chapter is the world. Jesus is constantly talking as this force of resistance and persecution. He says in verse 9, Jesus said his prayer was not for the world, at least not at this point. However, he doesn't exclude the world from his prayer, reaching it is his end goal, right? And when we hear the world, what we need to understand, Jesus is talking about those who were a part of the religious system or even the governmental system who were opposing the gospel. When it says don't love the world, it's not saying don't love, you know, the nature and it doesn't mean all businesses are bad or all people are bad. It's talking very specifically those who are in opposition to the character and heart of God that's taking place. Sometimes we have an idea that the world is everything that's not submitted to Jesus, but really it's about those things that are persecuting and what he's saying. Not just those who don't go to church or don't believe the Bible, those kinds of things. A major theme throughout this is the oneness of God and Jesus and his followers. A oneness he shares with his Father and with us, that they may all be one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all be one, just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The word one appears nine times in this chapter. And again, even as I read that, I feel like I'm reading Dr. Seuss sometimes, right? I mean, just the way they might be in we and me and you and you and them, it's just like this repetition, one, one, one. But this is so important. This is really one of the most important themes in the New Testament. Paul talks about unity more than he talks about justification or sanctification combined. Unity doesn't mean we all have to think the same thing, but we have to realize that we are part of the same work that God is doing. And I've got to tell you, I have a hard time with this. I'm always being challenged with this because there are some people I just really disagree with. 
who also believe in Jesus. And I feel like their idea of Jesus is really so much different than mine. And you know what? That's okay. What's important is I realize that we are still part of this family and that God's grace is much bigger and broader than I can figure out. And people that I would kick out of the family, right? Nope, Uncle Joe, you're out of here, right? You can't come here anymore. Get that. Anyway, whatever. God says, no, come on, Uncle Joe. You just got to stay over here. Watch him. Don't let him steal the silverware, right? God opens this idea where unity is important. It's how the world will know that we are Christians by our love for one another. It's not, this is central to the gospel is unity. And if that makes you uncomfortable, it's because it shows the problem that we have with wanting to be right or or wanting to change things. You know, you have people who are fundamentalists and then you have people who are progressive and you can be equally divided in not being unified in both of them. And I think God would look at the the people who are fundamentalists who are, you know, just so rigid in their belief and and thinking, no, we're the right way. And God said, you need to be unified. And the people who are progressive and saying, no, we're so open to everything except these people. They're really closed. And God would say, you know, you need to be unified, that it's important. It's important to be able to have discussion and talk in a way that's helpful. I I love it when people disagree. It it challenges what I believe and think, and it allows me to grow. But I don't like just yelling at people. I don't like people yelling at me. I don't like arguing for arguing's sake. I like to talk. But so many times it's like, we'll talk, but I don't agree with you, so now I'm cutting you off. Right? And, And if I don't agree with you, then I'll just go to a church that I do agree with. Because I don't believe that you're doing things right. I would rather that things be done this way. And this church, they do things that way. So I'll go there. And what happens? We just start to divide ourselves. And unity isn't what's seen. It's division. And that's really what's happening more and more. Jesus also in this chapter covers the past. He says, I have manifested your name. I have given them the words. I have guarded them. I have sent them into the world. He talks about the present. I am praying for them. I am no longer in the world. I am coming to you. I am not of the world. And he prays for the future. Keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil ones. Sanctify them that his followers will be with him. And he prays for those in the future that will come to believe in him through those who he has taught. This thread is kind of there, that God has been with us, he is with us, and he will be with us. And there is this communication that is taking place. A a thread is formed from these themes in Jesus' prayer. That thread of his glory, verses 1 through 5, the Father shares it with the Son, Jesus, then shares it with his disciples in verse 22. Verse 23, the disciples then reflect it to the world. There's this thread. God gives it, Jesus gives it, we continue it. It's to continue God the Father to Jesus, Jesus to the apostles, the apostles to the world. And I shared this already, but a confession I have is I have a hard time reading this chapter 
because of the way it's written. As I said, it sometimes reads like Dr. Seuss to me. And I'm just like, what's going on? It seems jumbled. I lose my train of thought. I'm trying to find a theme that's progressive through it, and I don't. It jumps ahead, and then it jumps back, and then it repeats itself. And I have trouble seeing logical connections sometimes between the themes and figuring it out. And I feel like I have to hold on to too many ideas at once, and I'm not able to find a structure and say, this is what he said, here's point one, point two, point three. I don't find that structure in this prayer. It's kind of like reading a legal document. You ever start reading one of those things, and it's like the party of the first part by the party of the second part. It's like, who's having a party, right? I don't even know what this is doing anymore. i I just talking in a different language than me. And and I feel that way sometimes reading this. But maybe we don't have to hang on to a logical theme or to all the pieces to track the twists and turns. Maybe we can read it differently. Technically, Jesus wasn't talking to his disciples. This was not another discourse or another sermon. It was prayer. It's said that at a White House dinner with President Johnson years ago that the chaplain was praying and President Johnson was on the other end of the table and he goes, speak up, I can't hear you. And the chaplain says, I wasn't talking to you. (laughs) Jesus isn't talking to the disciples. He's not giving a sermon. He's talking to God. He's talking to his father and at a very stressful time. And he opened his soul and poured what was in it out. The prayer didn't have to be organized or neat. Its style was not logical. It was emotional. When you are going through something very emotional, you don't have to fine-tune what you're going to say to God. Sometimes it just comes out. Do I have to say the right words for God to hear me? Can tears be a prayer? Can curse of frustration be a prayer to God? I don't think prayer is so much what I say as it is what God hears coming out of me. Because sometimes I don't know how to pray as I should. And even groanings, Romans 8 tells us, can be prayer that God intercedes for us. Things that come out of us. When I'm having a conversation, communication, it it can change depending on what's happening. I could be talking to my wife saying, I think we should do this. And then she might say, well, what happens if this happens? Oh, you're right. We better do this instead in case that happens. Well, we start doing it and then something else happens. You know what? We better change our plans because now this has happened. We got to make this adjustment to these things. Communication isn't something that is structured. Here it is. I'm going to talk to God and this is how it's going to go as if it's right this way. That's all there is to it. It depends how I live my life. It depends what's going on around me. There are so many moving parts. It's not like this is the will of God. That's it. The will of God is at work within the lives of all the people. And as people make decisions and choices, the will of God adapts to what needs to be done for the betterment of each people. Don't we understand that if you ask for bread, he will not give you a stone. If I can only cry, then I will cry and my father will hear and understand. <laughs> 
but I can cry. And it doesn't have to be organized. It doesn't have to be all well said. And it doesn't even have to have this element of it's got to be, you know, fundamentally true. If you pray something wrong, then God's not going to hear you. Sometimes I don't know what's right to pray in these circumstances. I don't know. And you guys have been there. You all struggle with these things. We've all been in circumstances where we're praying for circumstances and they're not going the way we would like them to. We've been praying for my mom to be healed. She's not being healed. Do I pray now, Lord, take her peacefully? I don't know. That's what she's praying. How do I deal with that? I don't know. Sometimes I'm praying, God, please heal her. Sometimes I'm praying, God, please take her. I don't know. I don't have to know. Prayer doesn't have to be organized and structured. Jesus is praying what's in his heart. And notice it's for the disciples. It's for them and their relationship with one another. It's for them to continue to follow his teachings and bring it to the world. The strong emotion of Jesus' prayer leaves its impression on us. This is what we are to receive from this prayer, the impression that in the last words, things that he could say was concern for those who he loved. It poured out of him onto them. And he said it over and over again, Father, may they be one. Glorify them even as you've glorified me. Lord, lead them in the truth. God, do this. And it's just going back and forth, but it's overflowing to them. And John, as he's reflecting on all the things that were written in the other gospels and all the things he remembers, he had to put this down because it was important for him to relate to us that at the end, when Jesus was done with all his sermons, with all his teaching, he prayed for us that that was on his heart. It's important to feel the intensity of his desire. For example, in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's intensity in this. God, I desire this for them. I want them to know this. Above all things, may they feel this. May they know this. It's his desire for them. His intensity that will move us to align our wills with his prayer. Just to be clear, although this is a prayer, it's still something that we can be taught. There's still teaching that's taking place, even though it's a prayer. As before, he was teaching by example. As he poured out his heart, his example was that they were to keep their eyes on the goal. Keep themselves close to God, to his resources. They were never to lose sight of the big picture. The picture in Jesus' prayer is very big. The scope of his concern is worldwide. He's wanting us to see that God is doing something that is far greater than what was just happening with this small group of men. It was going to go from them outward to the world, just having this big picture. And, and I love big pictures. 
I, I love those kinds of dreams. In January with the kids, we're going to be talking about dreaming big. We're going to talk about Martin Luther King Jr. and his dream. But where did that dream come from? It came from a faith that imagined a world that was different than the world he lived in. God wants the big picture to be a reality, but he wants to bring it home. There was a, a board meeting that Denise had for, for a reason, and everyone had to kind of share their vision. And, and my vision, I just realized after I shared, and I go, oh, man, that's kind of big, huh? I just kind of like, I want to see the education system changed in Haiti. You know, I had this grandiose idea, and it just seems so plausible to me. It just seems like, yes, we can be part of this amazing thing. And the lady was kind of orchestrating. She goes, wow, that's kind of big. And I go, I guess it is, huh? Not that we can do it, but I think God is doing it. I think God is always doing something bigger, right? That's what gives us hope, that in the small things, there's something big happening, that the present trouble can't be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us, that all things work together for the good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, right? There is something bigger that we are a part of that we have to keep our eyes on, and that's what Jesus is doing through this prayer. He's keeping his eyes forward on what God is doing, and we can't lose sight of that in the middle of where we're at. There is more going on. Before praying, it says that Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. I think that posture is important. Otherwise, John wouldn't have said that. He, he noticed this, that Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and then began to pray. John takes note that our Lord's gesture was significant. We don't pray with our bodies, but we can't pray without them. Posture does make a difference. When we take time and pause and position ourselves to pray, it helps when we position our bodies as well, that we make this effort, just like we do in anything that we're engaging in. If you're going to play an instrument, you pick it up and you have to move. If you're going to to dance, you have to move. If you're going to pray, you need to move. I remember reading somewhere that when you sit down and you put your palms up, that it affects your posture and it even affects your vision, that you have to look forward. When you just sit down and you put your palms up, it kind of straightens you up. And that it's hard to get angry when you sit down and put your palms up. And so when my son would be angry at us and having a discussion, I'd say, okay, let's sit down and put our palms up. And he'd do that, and he goes, (laughs) And it would visibly change how he interacted with us just by sitting down and putting his palms up. i go, well, let's talk now, but talk in this position. And sometimes he couldn't. Sometimes he'd have to shake it off. It's like, I, I can't be in this position. And I'm wondering... If God is trying to position our hearts to be able to communicate with him. And maybe what we need to do is take time out of our day and pause and sit. And we need to look up and we need to think differently. We need to posture differently. We need to live differently. Because this isn't just some religion that we are 
following. This is a God we are trying to know. This is a God that we believe in, who we're trying to communicate to. And maybe one of the ways we can help communicate with a being that is bigger than our ability to comprehend is to just change our posture, to just sit and look up and communicate. And I know if you feel funny doing that, do it alone. Do it in a room so you don't do it while you're driving, right? I mean, you just got to find the time where you can stop and you can pause and make the physical change that will help you to understand that. What drives us? Sometimes I don't even know. You know, perhaps you hate losing your temper and you find that you just keep losing your temper and you promise, I'm never going to do it again, and then you do it again. And I think we're drawn by desire so many times, but driven by something else. If we drop our guard and let what's deep inside come out, I think we'll discover a lot of emptiness is still really buried in us. Even as Christians, we feel it sometimes. A longing for something that isn't there. I I want more than what's in me. I, I think that's the reality that most of us have if we will pause and let ourselves go there, a need that's never been fully met. It's there, but we don't want to face it. Anthony DeMello said, and when the emptiness surfaces, what do you do? You run away, turn on the television, turn on the radio, read a book, search for human company, seek entertainment, seek distraction. Everybody does that. It's big business nowadays, an organized industry to distract us and entertain us. Why? Because we don't want to deal with what's in us. There's an emptiness there that I believe needs to be poured out to God so that it can be filled with God, not more distractions. The more distractions, the more blockages we create, preventing the light of God's glory to reach deep within us and heal the emptiness that I believe is a part of our lives and is a part of the world that we live in. Jesus prayed for us. He's still praying for us. I believe that. I believe that. It comforts me to know that I have been prayed for, that Satan would not sift me like wheat that God's glory can still reach me, that it can be revealed in us, that he is with us here and now, that he prays for us, says that he prays that our lives be filled with joy in verse 13 and with love in verse 26, that every day we will reflect his glory to the world. And reflecting his glory includes moments like this where we just pour out our hearts to God. The world doesn't need to see something that's artificial. It needs to see something that's genuine. What does a genuine relationship with the living God looks like? Sometimes it looks like a mess. Sometimes it looks like tears. Sometimes it looks like frustration. But it always looks for hope. It looks for unity. And if you don't know it, believe it now that God is for you. That if you ask for bread, he will not give you a stone. And that he is moving the universe 
for your sake. If God was willing to offer up his only son, don't you think he'd be willing to do anything he could for you? Jesus said that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is his prayer. That the love with which the Father loved Jesus may be in us, that he might be in us. Let's pray. Father, it's interesting to think of you praying. It's moving to see that you were moved for us. That at the end, when things were stressful, when you were facing the cross, that these are the words that came out of you, that this is what was in you, poured out for us. And it's touching and it's endearing and it brings comfort to know that you care, that you love us. And it comforts us too, Lord, to know that we get to follow in your steps, that we too can lift our eyes to our Father in heaven, that we can pour out our hearts, that we can share with you all the things that are within us, Lord, and that your desire is to have that communication, to live in this relationship. And what I pray for all of us here this morning, Lord, is that we would move out of our stagnant places where we have bottled ourselves up, where we do not pour out our hearts to you, where we do not face the emptiness within us, where we do not speak truthfully, not only to you, but to ourselves. Lord, we don't want to play games. We don't want to live a facade. We, we want to be genuine, and that's what you want from us. And, and so I pray it pushes us, Lord, to places that are uncomfortable, even if it pushes us to tears and it, it pushes us on our knees. Lord, may it push us forward, knowing that you are already there waiting for us, God. And I thank you for your faithfulness, Lord the example to us. Lord, we love you and are grateful for this example. And I pray, Lord, that you would unify our hearts, Lord. Lord, not that we would agree, but we would be single in purpose. That you love us and you love others. That you want to see that love demonstrated in how we conduct ourselves. Thank you, God. Help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. I'd like to do something this morning. If you have the desire to pray with someone for maybe whatever's going on in your life, um, I'll be over here. Um, If any of the leaders also want to join in prayer, we'll be over here so that we can pray with you for whatever things you're going through. 
Um, so if we can kind of move the chairs, Val, if we can scoot the chairs up and just give some room over here. If you do need prayer, be over here, a few of us, to pray with you for these things. And now may you understand that the desire of your Father is to be with you, and may you extend that desire to the people around you so that the will of God be displayed and glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.